Hello everyone, it's September 20th, 2022. This week we got a capstone update. It's been down, it's been up, but things are improving. Then Dennis talks to Aras Fazi of Kahan Space, a cool company that's taking satellite automation seriously in Earth's increasingly crowded orbit. So let's get the show in orbit and lift off. And we've cleared the tower room to episode 377 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. We should probably just mention Blue Origin because we're not going to mention it at any other point in the show. Mm. They had an in-flight abort of a New Shepard, which was uh, pretty crazy to see. And it was a successful abort, so that's mm. good. And there was no crew, but I feel like there very easily could have been. And that's about all we know at the moment. Apparently, they're being kind of tight-lipped, and even the FAA is kind of getting annoyed at them, I think. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> which is not surprising, because that's what Blue Origin does. But uh, the abort system did work very well, so that's a good thing. Yeah, it's weird, because like, their their engine, it looks like it was an engine problem. You can see like some hot streaks in the exhaust, and then suddenly it looks like there's a blowout. Like It looks like uh, propellant was escaping from around the engine rather than uh, just coming out of the engine bell. But, you know, it's tough to say because if it if the pressure drops, like gas can get pulled up higher as that plume gets really big. So mm-hmm. it's tough to say. But like, yeah, there were there were bright streaks in the exhaust before anything else happened. So engine problems. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that they said that we can't assume, and I suppose technically they're right, but they said we can't assume that it's an engine problem, like it very well might not be, but it mm. seems like it, but they kind of want to, you know, distance themselves from that conclusion. Yeah. Almost as if they're selling that very engine and like getting, <laughs> well, actually, no, no, no. It's, it's the, the BE4s that they're yeah. selling to. Yeah. Uh, the BE4. Yeah. yeah. But still, mm. you know, they're, they're getting ready to ship some very expensive engines. Now, I wondered this because if it's an engine issue and the fact that, like you're saying, they are on the hook for a lot of engines that they're making, when they talk about a booster being, uh, you know, crew rated or not, human rated or not, are those modifications ever really done to the engine? Because I just wonder, like, people were always talking about, like, well, thank goodness this was an uncrewed New Shepard, but what if it was a crewed one? And I just wonder if, if it's related to the engine... Do they ever change anything in the engines between crewed versus uncrewed, or is it just the other aspects of the vehicle? I I doubt that the engine has like that they have crew engines versus cargo engines. Right. So so it is still unsettling then a little bit if it was an engine issue. Um, the fact I mean, that it wasn't to say a they're not, human rated booster. Not, yeah, we like we don't know if they run the engines differently for crew and cargo. That that might be possible. Mm. But I mean. I think ultimately, like whenever you see a successful abort like this, it should only increase your confidence that if something goes wrong, they can recover from it. You know, ideally nothing would go wrong in the first place, but like it's, it's not all bad, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. They get a more exciting uh, flight, even if they don't <laughs> get to space. <laughs> well, unfor- I mean, exciting for the for the payloads that were in the new Shepard, everything that was in the booster, because there were a couple of payloads mounted externally on the booster. I don't think that the booster landed. <laughs> I I think those payloads. Uh, oh, mm, yeah, the booster got yeah. smushed. They got they got more free fall time than expected. But that, so, so Sam's saying something interesting in the chat uh, that New Shepard's not human rated. That that's specifically a NASA thing. And so at least for now, there's no equivalent from the FAA. So I guess they're designed to be human rated or not. But that's not a actual qualification. Like you can get a stamp of approval, like you could with a NASA vehicle. It depends on whether you're capitalizing human rated or not. Like, obviously, like it, NASA doesn't capitalize it, but it's kind of like a specific qualification than a general concept because, you know, other countries also human rate their vehicles without mm-hmm. NASA having a say. But yeah, it's good to point out that the FAA doesn't doesn't have a, a distinction. That's interesting because they must have obviously a lot of criteria, though, for if you can put a person on a particular vehicle, I mean, not just a rocket, but, you know, a plane, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what's the requirements? Because there must be a threshold where it's no longer, I guess there's no official human rated. It's just you have to meet all these requirements, but yeah. then that would be human rated, right? I don't know. Yeah. If you mm-hmm. if you fail out of your, like your launch license, like it doesn't matter what's on board. I, I'm more familiar with how the FAA treats airplanes. And that's like, you know, for the most part, Airplanes always have people on board. I mean, actually, it takes more work to certify an, a non, like a remote flight of a of a big airplane. I, I believe. I don't know. That's probably the reason why. Because I mean, like up until recently, of course they had people on them. They couldn't not. So, right. <laughs> so that was a uh, yeah. 
Is that non-issue? And, and yeah, so for for FAA, like it's the uncrewed vehicles are all like smaller light aircraft, like drones. And like there are a lot of drones that don't need to be registered at all because they're so small. So it's kind of a backwards issue for for FAA. Mm-hmm. Ba- backwards compared to to NASA or to, to space flight. In the news, Capstone safe mode update. Yeah. What's going on with Capstone? It's out of safe mode, I believe, but uh, it's not back to, you know, fully operational status. Mm-hmm. So just as a, a little bit of history to get us uh, some context, um, back on July 4th, this was uh, right before TCM. I think it was between TCM1 and TCM2. Uh, they sent poorly formatted command that wound up taking the radio uh out of commission. Um, I'm pretty sure we talked about that on the show. Um, and, uh, basically the solution for that was wait until the vehicle notices that it's not talking to the ground and the onboard computer, um, resets some parameters and, and it came back and they were just fine recovering it. And that was human error. Um, it's not clear if the more recent issue was also human error. Um, but it, it really would suck for this vehicle to have had somebody make a, um, an unforced error, right? Like they, they could have caught this. It was human error. And then after that, for the vehicle to also encounter uh, a vehicle error, just kind of a, a little bit of a plagued mission. But back on September 8th was TCM3, and that's when the current issue started. Um, they said that it, that during or shortly after the burn, um, something went wrong. It's not 100% clear what the root cause is. Um, but since then, they have actually stated that for some reason, the attitude rates started moving faster than the reaction wheels could keep up. So that that sounds like off-axis thrust or something like that, right? And so the vehicle started spinning fairly quickly, and it went into safe mode. It turns out that the vehicle tried to call home for a good 24 hours before they were able to actually make contact with it. And when they first started getting actual telemetry from the vehicle, uh, it was not good. They were in an emergency state. Um, the vehicle was not power positive, which means that it was eating up more power than it was bringing in with the solar panels. That's because it was, uh, it was still rotating and it wasn't getting enough time facing the sun, basically. And, uh, they described that as being not attitude stable, uh, which, which makes sense. So the, the vehicle just hadn't, um, been able to stop its spin and point home. And, the safe mode behavior probably it's probably best that it doesn't try and change its attitude. We've had a number of vehicles um, that we've talked about on the show where they, they go into safe mode and, or, or they, they wind up thinking that they're slowing themselves down when they're actually spinning themselves up, uh, whether or not that was in safe mode, but like, it, you know, it's, it's good to just stop and like, what's going on? Let me let the ground tell me what to do. So, in an update that they published on the 12th of September, um, they talked about some um, commands that they were able to send up to the vehicle. Um, basically, when they saw that the vehicle was power negative, um, they declared, I think, a, a mission emergency is what they called it. Um, it's really awesome. Uh, it's a NASA mission, but it's not owned by NASA. It's, it's owned by Advanced Space. And so NASA still has a, a vested interest in this thing making it. Um, and so NASA goes, okay, great. And they, I'm presuming started kicking people off of scheduled DSN time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they had, uh, extra DSN support and they basically did some quick thinking and were, uh, able to build some commands that got the vehicle into a more stable, uh, situation. It's now power positive. It's still rotating. I believe it's still tumbling, but, um, if it is tumbling, it's at least tumbling in a way that, uh, that it is power positive. Specifically, they said that it has partial illumination of the solar panels. And when they, uh, did this first, like 
panic recovery step. They wound up with good, with communication, but not like amazing communication. They had, uh, only the low gain antenna, uh, is going to be, uh, functional while it's tumbling. Obviously, the high gain antenna needs to be pointed. Um, and even on the low gain antenna, they had some pretty weak signals. Um, coming through. So that, that was September 12th that they published an update. I don't know when these actions were taken, but by the time they published an update on the 15th of September, um, they said that they had improved their communication situation um, and that they were getting ready to go ahead and detumble the vehicle. Unfortunately, during this time, the engines cooled down to the point where they're no longer operational. So they have to be able to run the engine heaters. And luckily enough, they do have enough power to heat the engines continuously. Now, continuously means that they're not, you know, heating for an hour and then stopping for two hours while they wait for the batteries to recharge. But it doesn't mean that the engine heaters are running at full blast. They're duty cycling them, which means that they're turning them off and on very quickly, at least relative to the spin of the vehicle, right? It's some duty cycle that they're doing, and it's it's probably turning on and off hundreds of times a second. But that's that's a pretty normal way to uh, to limit the voltage uh, or the current being pushed through a heater. So they're not up to 100%, but they're slowly warming these things up. And they're going to wait until the engines measure plus 5 degrees Celsius for 12 hours or longer. Um, and once they get to that point, they're confident that the engines are safe to uh, to start up. And so once they do that, they will go ahead and do a detumble maneuver. And I, I believe detumble maneuver is a general moniker that may or may not indicate that the vehicle is actually tumbling. It might just be spinning, but I suspect it is tumbling just because they haven't been able to do too terribly much. The reason that I'm equivocating is because they improved their communication situation and that to me suggests that they might have been able to use the reaction wheels to at least change the direction of the tumble, if not get all of their spin into one axis instead of two. So the detumble maneuver has already been done once before. Um, they needed to use what sounds like the same technique um, after they separated from photon. It makes sense, but keep in mind that when they separated from photon, they almost certainly were not tumbling as quickly as they are now. They have not published any numbers. I'm totally guessing, but if the vehicle was was tumbling bad enough that it was no longer pointing at solar arrays at the sun, I'm I'm guessing it wound up uh, getting a pretty decent amount of of spin rate up. But you know that doesn't mean that the maneuver is not going to work. Uh, it just means that it's a new situation to see if your techniques work. So it'll be really interesting uh, to keep following Capstone's recovery. Uh, it's really unfortunate that this is their second recovery <laughs> of the mission. And uh, even more than following the recovery, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, the root cause analysis. What happened? What went wrong? And please, please, please don't let it be another poorly formatted command. That would really suck. <laughs> it's possible. Totally possible. <laughs> Just really a, not a great, a great day for somebody. So this, this was TCM3, right? So it's, it's, it's coming back <laughs> to uh, the Earth Moon system after getting ye yanked or tossed all the way out there. You can say yeeted. Okay. It's okay. We're all friends here. It's safe space. <laughs> yeah. It, so. Yeah, it's pat, it's way past its apogee and it kind of did like a circularization maneuver way up high away from Earth and now it's falling back in towards the moon. Good, good to describe. Thank you, Dennis. Yeah. I want to make a silly joke about how at the end of the day, we really need Elcross to be the one to save us all. Or not Elcross, LRO, I guess. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, Elcross uh, uh, ain't going to be a big help. So this week, let's do four short and sweets, big one. And Ben, what is the first? All right, first up, SLD Lander RFP. Back in March, NASA released a draft version of a request for proposals, or RFP, on a second Artemis lander called the SLD, Sustaining Lunar Development Contract. After collecting industry feedback, NASA has this week released the official RFP and expects to award the contract next May. The second lander will make an uncrewed landing sometime after Artemis 3. 
then take part in a crewed Artemis surface mission after Artemis V. And then another RFP, NASA requests private missions. So NASA is requesting proposals for the third and fourth private astronaut missions, or PAM, to the ISS in 2023 and 2024. NASA allows up to two PAMs per year, though last year only Axiom Space was selected for a mission. This latest request for proposal also confirms NASA's requirement that a former NASA astronaut lead any proposed mission and have at least three references from previous supervisors or managers at the Flight Operations Directorate. The RFP also specifies that spacewalks will not be permitted for any private mission members. Next up, Ariane Group reveals reusable crewed vehicle for Ariane 6. At the International Astronautical Congress in Paris, France, Ariane Group unveiled its SUSY concept, which stands for Smart Upper Stage for Innovative Exploration. The company envisions the spacecraft to be used for moving both cargo and astronauts to and from space, with the vehicle itself replacing the Ariane 6 fairing. SUSY will be 12 meters long, 5 meters in diameter, and weigh 25 tons, and will be capable of taking 7 tons to orbit. For reuse, Ariane Group intends for the spacecraft to propulsively land vertically, with abort capability during all phases of flight. And fourthly, Morpheus Space raises funds. Morpheus Space has announced that it raised $28 million in a Series A funding round. CEO Daniel Bach said it will use these funds to invest in scalability. The company plans to establish a factory in Dresden, Germany, where it can increase production of its miniature electric thrusters. Morpheus also plans to expand its range of services to better help satellite operators maneuver their spacecraft on orbit and safely deorbit in a timely fashion. It is hoped that the recent FCC ruling requiring deorbit of defunct satellites within five years will increase demand for their products. Remotely interview uh, with uh, Araz Fazi, who is the co founder and CTO of Kahan Space and is currently at SmallSat 2022 in Logan, Utah, and is going to tell us about some pretty cool collision avoidance uh, plus uh, some more capabilities. Uh, a really uh, awesome system that's very exciting that they had recently announced. So, uh, Araz, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. No, thank you for having me. It's great to be on the show. Can you tell us a little bit? about yourself, uh, where you got to where you are, and perhaps a little bit about the uh, origin of Kahan Space. Yeah, for sure. Um, I am a technologist. You know, Growing up, since I was a kid, I always loved to bring technology and try to solve a problem using technology and automation. And that's kind of what I've done throughout my career. I've been part of big companies, small companies, startups, um, early stage uh, startup employee, co-founder in a previous company. And and that, that has been kind of the, the theme of uh, my career. Let's bring technology, let's bring whatever does the, is, is the best and uh, best, best out there and, and find a real problem uh, and then solve it. Um, done it for hospitality, cybersecurity, and, and now space. My co-founder, Siamak, um, he is an expert in astrodynamics and, and uh, uh, or, orbital dynamics. He has a PhD in orbit determination and estimation. He's led, supported various NASA, JPL commercial missions. Uh, and he's my best friend from high school. We went to high school together, college, and, you know, uh, we go way back. And the reason uh, uh, and we started this company is because, you know, as friends, as we were talking, he used to tell me how he believes that this industry really needs to change the way they deal with satellite operations. He believed that it's still very manual. Uh, he was telling me that, hey, I've been hired for a third time to build the exact same capability for this company now in-house. And, 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 and by the way, there's the, the, these you know, mega constellations announced. If they launch, it's going to get out of hand. So we spent a few months, uh, I think, as, you know, as much as nine months, uh, kind of surveying the market, talking to operators. And we identified it as, as a real problem, that that needs a solution. And that's how we started this company in 2019. And, and we decided that the, 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 the most, uh, you know, immediate problem that that needs a solution is collision avoidance for satellites, which I can get into details. Oh, no, wonderful. That's, uh, I mean, as far as bringing your uh, technological background, <laughs> that certainly seems like one of the big things in space that is currently, it's, I don't want to say it's unaddressed, but it needs to be addressed clearly much more. And so uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your your views on what the, the current state of orbital debris is, 
right? We've heard of Kessler syndrome, the dangers of that. And so how do you, how do you see this uh, moving forward? Yeah, let's, let's, let's look at it from numbers perspective. Um, since 1960s, we have launched right around 10,000 satellites, give or take so far. Um, half of those, a little less than half of those are still operational. And just this year alone. So, okay. So 10,000 in the last 60 years, just this year so far, we have launched more than a thousand satellites. Uh, it's expected and the predictions show that in the next decade alone, we're going to be have launching 60 to hundred thousand more satellites. And I think that's, that's, you know, I think it's going to be more than that, but just imagine that's, you know, order of magnitude more satellites we're launching. Right now in Earth orbit, there are estimated 1 million pieces of debris that are larger than one centimeter in diameter. So they're lethal at 17,000 miles an hour, 10 times the speed of a bullet. If they hit a satellite, it won't just destroy that satellite. The debris from that will threaten other satellites. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, Kessler syndrome is, is a chain reaction that's predicted that if it might happen, that if you have a bad collision, the debris from that could you know, cause more collision, more debris, more collision, and, and it can re render an entire orbital regime unusable for generations to come because some, some of these pieces of debris stay there for, for, for decades, if not longer. And let's not remember that's not only affecting lower Earth orbit operations or Earth orbit operations. If you want to go to cislunar, if you go perform you know, beyond that, you have to go through that orbit. So if, if you know, a, a, a bad accident in uh, lower Earth orbit will will prevent us from exploring uh, or will make exploration a lot more difficult. And another thing I always want to bring up is that it, you know, this is not just a pain point and it's not a problem for space industry because the problems in orbit don't stay in orbit. Uh, every aspect of our modern life is supported by space technology, right? So from GPS to communication, to, to transportation, to agriculture, you name it, everything we do is touched by, by, by space industry or by, or by Earth orbit. Or, that's why it's an infrastructure. And that's, how, that's why we need to treat Earth orbit as an infrastructure. Now, a, a recent study uh, from last year uh, came out of UT Austin. They, they estimated that 95% of carrying capacity of lower Earth orbit is already taken up by space junk, 95%. So we have very little wiggle room. So out of those million pieces of debris that estimated or that exist, more large than one centimeter in diameter, we're tracking about 30 to 50,000 of them. So that these are the ones that are larger than 10 centimeter in diameter and, and they can be tracked uh, quite precisely. And, and so a couple of things are happening. One, you have more operational satellites. We have, we, our, our technology is advancing. So we are seeing more debris. So obviously there's more trouble, right? And then the way we are operating in space has changed. So that is making it difficult for more traditional or classic ways of tracking uh, assets to continue to track objects precisely. For example, if I perform a low thrust maneuver and if I don't tell anyone, uh, the, the ground trackers will just get lost, right? So they'll, they'll, they'll think that they, their precision has probably, so it will just basically increase uncertainty. And so because of that, uh, we really need, and, and, and uh, you know, uh, we are in a point of time in the space industry that's growing in every direction very rapidly. But but our well, but we believe that the infrastructure that is that needs to support that growth is not there yet, and this is one of those very fundamental things that we need to have to be able to support this growth. So that's why we picked this area as our first um, kind of um, first first area to 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 bring our product into, and that's collision avoidance because it is a pain problem. It's it's a pain point. It's a big problem, and it's a growing problem. So um, and and it is it is it's the safety that's at risk. Yeah, right. I mean, certainly, uh, that's that's uh, the tragedy of the commons. They always bring that up, uh, that it's something that can affect and really uh, shoot a lot of people in their own foot, uh, a lot of companies. And yet there's still it's difficult to try to monetize it and uh, get to where you can uh, really lean into something like that. And so that's why I do have a bigger picture question, but I kind of want to already get into uh, Pathfinder now. So your solution, um, or rather, I should say, um, well, yeah, your solution and one of the prongs that can be brought to uh, addressing orbital debris is the uh, Pathfinder uh, spaceflight safety platform. And so can you give us the elevator pitch uh, on what that is, and then we can go from there? Yeah, Pathfinder is designed and we're developing it to put your collision avoidance on autopilot. What we do is we collect data from different sources. We keep an eye on our customers' assets. If we detect 
or when we detect the conjunction, which is a close approach or a potential collision, uh, when we detect the conjunction that our customer needs to know about, so it's risky enough, we send them a notification. Uh, and we support various ways of notification, SMS, Slack, Mattermost, whatever you use. And then if they need to perform a maneuver to get out of the way, we automatically generate maneuver plans for them that are designed based on all the constraints that, that they deal with. So they're ready to use. So for example, here are my propulsion capabilities. Um, I don't have shift on Sunday, so I can't perform this maneuver on Sunday. I can only maneuver when I have con uh, contact and, and so forth. Um, so we ingest all of those, we've parameterized those. So we have uh, a very robust set of algorithms that, that come up with optimal maneuver plans that one, are performable, so we can actually take it and perform it. It's, it's feasible for the spacecraft. And two, we pre-screen them to make sure that performing that maneuver is not going to cause another accident. So uh, we provide you with maneuvers that you can just download and send it to your satellite. And this happens within minutes. Um, and, and, and by doing so, we are reducing the response time to potential collision events by more than 95%. We're taking human, for the most part, out of the loop, uh, especially with the, with the kind of current trends of, of shorter kind of heads up time, uh, less time to respond. It is very critical for us not to rely on humans for manual processes to keep our spacecraft safe. Now that, that sounds sensible. Do you have a ballpark figure, I guess, in the field for what the kind of lead time for a worrying enough conjunction tends to be? Uh, my general answer always is it depends. Uh, but I'll give you a range. Uh, generally speaking, we can detect uh, conjunctions five days out or so, uh, but that can change very dramatically based on the the you know the case. So if you have somebody performing maneuver not telling you, and that can be very sh much shorter. So we've had we've seen uh, conjunctions that we you know we, they weren't detected until a day before uh, the, the the event. Um, so it ranges, but but generally what happens is. The further out you go, the less precise the solutions are. So what we do is we, as soon as we detect them, we keep we can we track them, uh, and then we we look at the trends and how they're trending, and based on that we make a decision what to do. And and so do you yourselves have uh, uh, ground assets that are doing this tracking? We don't. Uh, we're not a data company. We rely on data sources um, that exist today and are very robust. Um, we focus on algorithms and we we focus on decision making. Copy that. That makes sense. I mean, just, you know, it being out there doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be caught <laughs> given just how many things yeah. are on orbit. So, so, um, I, I, I hear, so, right. So this is autonomous as, as you're, uh, uh explaining, uh, which really kind of makes sense again, as more and more things go up there and you have a subscription based model, as I understand. That's great. So what, what does the, I actually, you, you kind of spoke to this already, but maybe, um, what does the ConOps look like for a typical debris avoidance maneuver using Pathfinder? Is the client going to get the heads up? Are they going to see the telemetry of their, mu uh, of their vehicle change? Uh, like how does, what does that look like, I guess? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll, I'll give you a uh, you know, semi-real example. So you get a notification. Uh, it's a weekend. You get it on. You look at your phone. There's a, there's a Slack notification. You look at it and you realize that uh, there's an event coming up in 48 hours um, and it, is, it seems to be pretty serious. Um, so you, you can forward it to your colleagues uh, or you can just decide to monitor it. Uh, and then, you know, you wake up the next morning, you look at it and the problem of collision has increased and, and you need to perform maneuver. The maneuver is already generated. So you look at the, your maneuver options uh, and, and you pick one that, for example, in this case is early enough for you to know that if, if I miss this opportunity, if the, if the performance, if the, if the, if the spacecraft fails to perform the maneuver, I have another opportunity at it. So you choose one and, and you send it to your command and control software and that gets uploaded and right at the next contact after the, the maneuver, you get your new telemetry. Today it is, uh, we ask our uh, customers to verify because before we perform the maneuver, we give them the predicted ephemeris of post maneuver so they can very easily kind of do that comparison and to see if, whether or not the maneuver was successful. If it wasn't successful, we've already generated a new set of uh, maneuvers for them to perform. Uh, and, and that's about it. And, and uh, the maneuver gets performed. Uh, the, 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 the event shows a significant drop in the probability or the event goes away, which is always a good sign. 
um, and, and yeah, they can get back to work. And uh, I'll just add one more thing. The last step of allowing the user to review and upload is, is, is not automatic by design. We are allowing our customers to see the options, but, but that is a, that's a piece that can be automated uh, as well. So you can always say, hey, I just want whatever maneuver that you feel that, that Kahan recommends, I would like that to perform. And that's, that's a very easy kind of task. So it's 95% autonomous, I'd say. That's cool. I mean, that, that, given that choice, that option makes sense. Uh, what, what type of propulsion systems for your, your clients uh, would be able to use your, your product? Yeah, great question. So, and that's that's one of the major uh, areas that we improve them. We we discussed it in our recent release. Uh, Pathfinder Pro today supports impulsive maneuvers um, of different types. So, uh, fixed EV. You know, if you have throttling um, capabilities or vectoring, uh, we also support low thrust propulsion uh, as well as uh, uh, differential drag. Uh, we just released our differential drag and low thrust propulsion into beta. And we actually, we, we recently performed a couple of maneuvers for one of our customers. Um, so yeah, so we, today we support a, a wide variety of, of propulsion systems. That's, that's really cool. Uh, differential drag, right? As I understand, that's kind of really <laughs> at the uh, cutting edge. <laughs> um, it is. And, and, on, and a lot of times that is the only tool you have in your toolbox, because if you have a satellite that's flying with no propulsion, it's like a car without brakes which we don't want to have, but if you have it, and you know, if, if that's the only tool you have in toolbox, we are enabling our customers to use it uh, as much as they can. I was wondering, so I had read that uh, the system was beta tested. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that went? Yeah, so uh, our product in general has very high uh, TRL. So it's, we have a lot of flight heritage. We've been uh, providing newer plans for over a year now. Some of our algorithms are in general availability, uh, but uh, differential drag and, uh, and uh, low thrust are in beta today. But, but yeah, we're using them with actual customers. Uh, we are providing service to uh, right around 400 satellites, commercial satellites today, uh, and that number is growing very rapidly. Yeah, I'd seen uh, Capella Space, Global Star, and Link Global. And so uh, those are definitely uh, names that people <laughs> would recognize. Yeah, those are the names that we are able to mention, but uh, there are more than a dozen uh, other companies that we work with. So I had also seen uh, a quote, I'll just read it from your release with uh, this uh, exciting announcement with Pathfinder, that uh, Kahan Pathfinder can also optimize revenue generating missions whenever possible by scheduling preemptive and pre-planned maneuvers during operational downtimes. Now I'm a non-expert. Uh, does that sound like just using your system, not necessarily for debris avoidance maneuvers, but also to just take advantage of uh, the fact that on-orbit capability is uh, maneuvering is important for uh, customers? Yeah. So, I mean, if you are up there, if you're, you know, if you're flying a constellation, you have a mission, you have a probably business model. And uh, one of the, uh, and, and you got to do what you got to do. Like if you have to perform a maneuver to get out of the way, or if you have to perform a maneuver to keep your orbit, you have to do it. Uh, but we we are uh, helping our operators choose the maneuvers that that will minimize the disruption to to their operations. Um, so we we look at it as another constraint. Um, I have a very high uh, call it very high um, priority mission or task that I have to perform. So I can't perform maneuvers around these hours. Great, that's a constraint. We'll just take that in. We'll make sure that we don't recommend the maneuver during those times unless it's absolutely necessary. And, and this is just the beginning. We're working with, partnering with other um, you know, companies to, um, to maximize or, or kind of to minimize the disruption and, and, and help optimize the, the top line and bottom line for satellite operators. Cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, playing Kerbal Space Program, uh, I think maneuvering is just as simple as pressing a keyboard button, but there's uh, certainly a little more to it when you're in the real world. So could you tell us a little bit about the Eagle system? So one of the very basic, well, fundamental, not basic, fundamental things um, in, um, in you know, space operations is our ability to uh, propagate and predict uh, the trajectories of, of objects in, in space. Um, 
Eagle is a product that we have been developing for over a year and a half now. We, we're excited that it's, uh, it's finally available for, for folks to use it. Uh, it is a very high performance, high fidelity propagation engine that can propagate and, and predict the trajectory of space objects um, over, you know, uh, in the future very rapidly and very precisely. So today it works uh, from LEO to uh, Cislunar, uh, but we are working on expanding it to support uh, interplanetary missions as well. Um, and the reason we decided to do that, there, there are a couple of products out there, either open source or, um, or commercial. You know, we realized that, 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 again, going back to infrastructure, it, we're lacking uh, the market. The industry is lacking a solution that is that's built to support today's environment. So Eagle is, you can access it through our cloud uh, service, uh, through APIs, through a software development kit. It can be deployed locally. Um, so it is, it is, um, it is a, it's a workhorse uh, of, of Kion Space uh, platform. And now we're providing it as a product, as a service to, uh, to other operators as well. It's very cool. Okay, well, I think uh, we have enough time before the final two questions for you to ask this one that was earlier. This is just my own personal question is, uh, how well have we characterized what are the busiest orbits, the most dangerous ones? Is it SSO, mid-inclination, something else? Do we have much of a, a handle on that? It is changing, and it really depends on how you look at it. Um, we actually we continuously do studies in-house um, to kind of do, you know, leaders support our, our customers with their mission planning because it's not about today, right? It's about how it is going to look in a year, in a two years, in three years. Because if you're, if you're planning your mission today, it's not for today. It's for, you know, a few years in the future. Um, yeah, definitely SunSync orbit is an interesting one. Uh, polar orbits in general. A couple of things we've seen uh, that are changing the dynamics a little bit are, one, ride-share missions. So you have a ride-share mission going and, and dropping a bunch of satellites in similar orbits. Uh, so you have a lot of low-velocity uh, encounters between different operators that is very difficult to handle. But yeah, SunSync orbit is a, is a big one, but but that's going to change, I think, pretty pretty quickly with the way we are you know, deploying other constellations. So, Araz, uh, I've got, so where would you like to be found on the internet? Uh, so we can put in the show notes uh, where to find uh, more about you or Kahan Space or... To follow, I mean, I try to, you know, be active on Twitter. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter. I'll send you my Twitter handle for, if you want to put it in. At, uh, um, but our website, kahan.space, K-A-Y-H-A-N.space, is where you can find the latest information about us as a company and also uh, LinkedIn. Um, we try to share the news on LinkedIn and Twitter first. So if you follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn, you'll, uh, you know, we'll make sure that you get the, the, the latest news on, on what we're doing. Wonderful. Thank you. And then finally, uh, a bit of a fun question. <laughs> if you could bring one object with you into space, what would it be? Oh, man, that's interesting. Uh, I feel like um, that is interesting. Um, I, I think just it would be something uh, for my kids. I have two daughters. And just to encourage, uh, encourage them and encourage them to explore. So it will probably be one of their belongings so they can go get it. <laughs> that is wonderful. I left, I left in space. You know, figure out a way to go get it. So. <laughs> there, there you go. I, I really like that. Well, thank you, Raz, so much for uh, joining us and uh, really appreciate it. No, thank you. Uh, it was great talking to you and thank you for this opportunity. All right, let's move along to this week's spaceflight history. And we have just two winners this week. Same as my clue. Same what my clue got. So uh, just two again. Uh, the winners are Chris, uh, a.k.a. Stargarfield, and the Greek who got bonus points. So I guess uh, forgetting the essence of the clue, which was second birthday. So what is this second birthday? I'm excited to understand what that's about. Yeah, this was... Uh... This is very turned out to be a very topical event after I picked the clue just because of recent events. And so this was September 26, 1983, and this was Soyuz T-10A's pad abort. And so this was, in fact, a pad abort. You might now be like, oh, right, that was that crazy one where there were humans on board. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, 
yeah, I kind of want to give a bit of a dive into what actually went wrong and how it happened, because this is a very um, human kind of spaceflight event, as you can imagine, when there were humans that were facing a lot of danger. And in some of the reporting, they were, you know, referencing this as potentially being the Soviet Union's challenger. Um, of course, that must have been after the fact, because this was in 1983 uh, when this happened. And so... In any event, this was overall the 94th crewed mission to orbit, so we'd been sending meatbags up there for a while, but uh, it was the 80s, and so uh, vehicle failures were more common back then. And so this mission, I told you, was the Soyuz T-10A, but that was the name given to it after the fact. It was originally just going to be the Soyuz T-10, and it was a mission to Salyut 7, the uh, the seventh and final of the Salyut missions before uh, Mir went on orbit. And so the two cosmonauts uh, that were going to fly in it were uh, Vladimir Titov. Uh, this would have been his second space flight. Uh, it was his second flight. Uh, I'll, I'll call it a flight. <laughs> and then uh, Gennady Strekalov. This second would have been launch. his third space flight. Yes, the second launch, because <laughs> yeah, it was a launch and it was a flight, So, <laughs> but it was not a space flight. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, and Gennady in particular, um, as, as we say in my family, he, he kind of had a black cloud uh, about him. He, he seemed to have very bad luck. And um, he had previously flown on a Soyuz T-8, so not that many missions ago, which was one that actually had gone and failed to dock with Salyut 7. Pretty interesting. I don't want to go into too many details, but essentially uh, at some point, I guess on ascent, uh, the rendezvous uh, radar antenna was damaged. And so they, I think, tried a manual docking, which almost resulted in a collision. And so they backed off. And after just, you know, a couple of days in space, they deorbited and returned to Earth. And so as you can imagine, between that uh, and, and, you know, ultimately what happened on this mission, uh, uh, Strekalov's mod did not like her son flying into space. Uh, she kind of wished she had a different career choice, but uh, he would fly again. <laughs> and so would uh, Vladimir Titov. So. So, the, so the idea, like I said, this was going to go to Salyut 7, uh, which was had already been up there. A bunch of crews had already gone. And uh, it would join the uh, crew of Soyuz T-9 that was already on orbit. Uh, and they'd do some spacewalks, installing and deploying some solar arrays, uh, that kind of good stuff. And so uh, the vehicle in particular, right, we use Soyuz for the spacecraft. Uh, the Soyuz T numbering system was, uh, this is a third generation Soyuz, essentially. And then the Soyuz rocket itself was the Soyuz U. And so this was one that first flew in 1973 and flew until only five years ago, uh, as of this recording, 2017. Um, and it's its first crewed flight because it would take up a lot of it would launch a lot of things that were uh, uncrewed missions. But its first crewed flight was actually a not the so Apollo Soyuz test project itself, but a mission to support it, Soyuz 16. So this was a mission for a couple of cosmonauts to essentially try out the unique docking system that they had set up to make these two you know spacecraft, one from NASA, one from the Soviet Union, uh, to be able to uh, dock with each other as part of the Apollo Soyuz test project. Very long history there. In any event, uh, let's go to September 26th. Uh, this was an evening launch, uh, not middle of the night, but like, I don't know, 9, 10 p.m.-ish. And uh, it was windy, it was cold, the crew's sitting in there, they're listening to music. Um, like I said, they'd both flown before, so these were not rookies. And the countdown, everything is proceeding normally, but around T minus 90 seconds or so, minute and a half, evidently a valve, uh, somewhere in one of the strap-ons failed to close. And as a result, uh, nitrogen, which was used as the uh, pressurizer, uh, the pressurizing gas, uh, wound up, I guess, blowing into the, uh, the turbo pump of the Block B strap-on booster. Okay, and so this is uh, this was the uh, uh, RP1 rocket propellant one turbo pump, and by uh, spinning it up, but it being dry, that essentially moved it past, uh, pushed it past its, uh, I guess, mechanical capabilities, and it failed. And ended up, uh, that failure resulted in whatever braking that caused uh, some of this rocket fuel, RP-1, to start leaking and pooling up onto the pad. Hmm. Now, um, th this is one thing, and I, I think I'd mentioned it on a, a previous twist, but like I like to point out that the the Soviet convention for uh, the Soyuzes, right? Who've been, you know, Soyuz I have been flying forever these vehicles, and um, they label each of the four sh liquid strap-on with a different block and then a letter. So there's the block B, 
V, G, and D, or because they sound so similar, Bravo, Victor, Golf, and Delta. And so those are considered the, the first stage because even though they fire the same time as the core, they fall off. You get that beautiful core left cross and all that. And then the core, which is labeled block A, continues firing. And then once that's exhausted, the third stage, which to us we would tend to think of as a second stage, uh, is called the block I. And so specifically, this was the block B1 where you had this failure, rocket fuel starts pouring out and catching on the pad. Now, it didn't take long for a fire to start. And there's, there's, you know, I don't know if there's footage necessarily, but there's definitely pictures that I've seen of this happening. You've got the two cosmonauts, sit, they're sitting in their capsule, and they can feel these unusual vibrations, but there's no window, right? They're enclosed in a fairing around the Soyuz spacecraft, but they know something is wrong. While people in the blockhouse <laughs> a few miles away are basically wigging out, Strekalov uh, tightens his harness and um, uh, tells Titov to do the same because I, I guess he's anticipating that things are going to turn south and uh, they might need to, uh, you know, basically leave in a hurry. What, what would happen in this context typically is that the launch escape system would fire. And so this was a uh, the, the kind of classic old school style um that you know we still have on uh, I guess Orion still have this kind of one where you have a you know rocket motor in front of the uh, crude part of the capsule at the very very forward end of the vehicle and those rocket motors pull the crew away from the vehicle that's running into trouble and then taking it to a safe distance or whatever. Yeah, I and think it's usually called a tractor. That's what they call that tractor. kind of escape system. Oh, that's cool. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so it's a tractor-style escape system as opposed to, like, Dragons, which has uh, its its Super Dracos, I guess, are the ones that uh, boosted away. Now, the unfortunate thing is that this tractor had its cables burned through because there was a fire. The people at the launch control uh, could not uh, activate it. And by design, the crew inside can't manually trigger the launch escape system either. That That could have been the end, but there was a backup. But the backup was non-trivial to get going, right? So there's this fire occurring, and rather than just immediately getting out of there, they can't, again, because the cables burned through. So they needed to use the backup system, which involves two people that are in different rooms and different buildings, and sorry, in a different building 20 miles away, so not at essentially mission control. And they needed to receive this code word, the Nestor, which I believe is the name of a river. Um, they would receive this code word, Denester, and then uh, basically give the command, uh, you know, press a button, I guess, or turn a switch, and do that within five seconds of each other. And then that would send the radio commands to the spacecraft to activate the launch escape system and pull the astronauts away. And so because of that non-trivial amount of things that needed to happen, um, they basically were good about it, but it still took a good 10 seconds. And so at that point, the launch vehicle with this, with the fire literally kind of now licking up the sides of the booster and approaching the, the, the capsule on top, the launch vehicle is already tipping to the side noticeably. And the astronaut, the cosmonauts could feel it. But the signal was sent after 10 seconds of uh, fire and panic and the launch escape system activated and pulled the upper two uh, parts, uh, upper two modules of the Soyuz along with the fairing and the tractor away from the rocket, which exploded seconds later. Yeah. Mm. And Chris in the chat, I like, he points out a very long 10 seconds. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that's a fair point. So the uh, the launch escape system, that, that resulted in Titov and Streklov experiencing somewhere in the ballpark of 14 to 17 Gs of acceleration for five seconds as they're getting teared away. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, it, it's got the upper two. So just real quick, right? The Soyuz has three modules. It's got, uh, I guess, from the bottom going up, it's got the service module, uh, similar to how uh, an Apollo had a service module, but that's, you know, humans don't go in there. And then you've got the descent module shaped more like a bell. That's where you are on uh, ascent as well as uh, returning to Earth. That's the part that comes back. And then uh, you have the little ball sitting on top of that. And that's the orbital module. That's one to kind of give you more living space on your way to station or just free flying or on your way to salute, whatever you're going. And um, that one, though, gets, you know, ejected, uh, 
basically broken off when the Soyuz comes back um, after it does its deorbit burn. So anyway, yeah, so the orbital and descent modules, those top two, the ones that humans can live in, uh, get pulled away along with the fairing and everything else. Uh, with that many Gs, that's because they're getting 176,000 pounds of thrust pulling them away from, again, a, a, an exploding Soyuz rocket. And that pulled them up to about 3,000 feet was their maximum altitude. Um, as they start coming back down at 2,100 feet, they break away the orbital module and they lose the escape tower and the shroud as well. And they start coming back to Earth. They got the four stabilizers that look like grid fins on the side. So I don't know if, if, if you noticed them. I actually hadn't noticed these uh, grid fins until I was watching a, uh, a Shenzhou flight, I think, last year. And I was wondering, like, what's going on with that? But apparently it's, 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 these are for aerodynamic control, kind of like how a uh, shuttlecock, um, uh, the birdie that you hit in badminton, um, has those little kind of, you know, feathers sticking out of them. And so that's what those stabilizers are there for. The system worked great. Um, and the, the vehicle landed under parachute. The, the cosmonauts were uh, essentially okay. And so this, this was actually, uh, an upgraded, uh, launch escape system for this, for this particular, uh, Soyuz spacecraft. And so it had a, uh, essentially a better solid motor, but also unlike the previous launch escape systems, which never, I guess, triggered with uh, crew on board, uh, they were able to come down under the main chute rather than the backup chute. And so I'm sure they were very happy to be able to uh, have that bringing them back to Earth after this uh, very harrowing escape again from a fireball. And so, yeah, they landed about four kilometers or two and a half miles from the pad, which was Gagarin's start, um, where a lot of the you know the crew launches, uh, um, maybe all of them, uh, take place uh, in Baikonur. Yeah, and so they landed. Like I said, they were safe. Uh, they were a little bruised, uh, pulling almost 20 Gs <laughs> for uh, five seconds. Uh, even if they strapped in a little tighter, they uh, were going to take some some licks uh, during the, the the flight. But um, they 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 asked for smokes <laughs> the second they uh, kind of uh, people had gotten to their. Uh, vehicle to rescue them and uh they were given shots of vodka to calm their nerves and because of this uh, brush with death they uh, referred to the event as their second birthday right the second kind of lease on life that they had mm -hmm. and so okay. that's where the clue comes in uh, second birthday as i say that was that was a that was a tough clue i realized but yeah you know, great job for <laughs> uh, for getting it the greek and so uh i guess a little uh, bit to kind of cap things off uh what happened in the future well both of these cosmonauts would fly again uh titov flew a few more quite a few more times fact, strike loved it as well um and titov's later flights and included a uh, stay on Mir, as well as two shuttle missions, including uh, his final one, which was STS-86. He was actually Mission Specialist 1, which is pretty cool. I didn't realize that um, they would do that for cosmonauts flying on shuttle. I thought usually they'd stick them with a higher-numbered uh, MS <laughs> position and then stick them in the uh, uh, the mid-deck somewhere, but no, he was, he, was, he was MS-1 on that one. And then um, Strekolov might have been mentioned uh, when we covered uh, uh, Soyuz TM-10, which was the first uh, flight of a uh, uh, the first commercial flight of a non-professional astronaut, which was Akiyama Toyohiro uh, when he went to orbit, uh, uh, and he went to Mir, and so Strekolov also was on that one there too, and so his mom could have been happy that he got to show this uh, Japanese journalist what life on Mir was like. Like I said, the Soyuz U flew until 2017 and had a 97.3% success rate. And so this was uh, obviously harrowing, but the fact that the crew got away with only minor bruises uh, means that, you know, things worked out well. Yeah. Uh, considering. So I'm still kind of confused as to what happened with, like, what caused it all. So the, um, and I probably should have mentioned it then. So going Not way here. back, um, <laughs> the nitrogen, because it seems that, like, I mean, from what little I just read that, yeah, there was a valve failure and then um, there was RP-1 that had leaked all over the pad. But you're saying that that was caused by a nitrogen overpressure, like it was a valve that caused, that uh, failed, causing an excess of pressurization from the nitrogen that went where, like directly into the turbo pump or was this like from the tank? So, yeah, so this, this is my reading between the lines and that's why you guys have i think a much better i know you guys have a better handle on hardware than i do and so i'd love to hear what you think about this but from my reading is that because of this valve which was you know trying to keep nitrogen from going where it shouldn't go <laughs> uh i guess check valve or whatever uh, i don't know if that's necessarily the case but whatever this valve was it failed to close uh when it was supposed to be closed and so this nitrogen i'm assuming when they say it entered the turbo pump and caused it to move beyond its limits is that it basically spun the turbine, which I can imagine if, uh, you know, I mean, 
that's what a lot of these turbines are spun by hot gas, but mm -hmm. highly pressurized nitrogen ought to do the trick too. And just because it was being spun up without any propellant in it and beyond its design limits, that caused mechanical, like it to break apart, you know, maybe bits to go flying out in parts that it shouldn't, and that might have punctured or ruptured something or caused a break in something that then resulted in the RP-1 just straight up leaking out and getting there. So why is nitrogen, like how does nitrogen get into a turbo pump? Like it's, yeah, it's, it's to pressurize the propellants, I believe, but, right, but the, this was after they had fueled. So I don't know how it gets underneath the, the liquid propellant and gets yeah. into the feed valve. Right. Because if it was completely unfueled, then yeah, that, that makes sense. But if it's already fueled, yeah. I, I don't understand. I thought it was just creating back pressure in the tank, like, you know, an yeah. excessive pressure that. Yeah. And, and it was during, it was during a fill event. So I don't know. I, I, I have a very unscientific, unengineering answer, which is that there's just so many pipes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> connecting so many things together that if you let because by being a pressurized gas that's at a higher pressure than basically anything else around and so mm -hmm. if it wants to go flowing anywhere it possibly can that might include yeah erroneously getting in like bypassing the fuel tank entirely which was adjacent to the engine so we had at least that in our favor as far as trying to understand what was going on but it just bypassed i guess i think what con says in the chat actually makes sense and mm. i think i think maybe that was my First thought, I don't remember now, I was going through these different scenarios. So basically, it was a dry tank, and then it was overpressurized with nitrogen, which caused the turbo pump in some way to break. And then when the fuel like loaded, it just leaked right out of the engine onto the pad because, you know, mm. something had been, you know, cracked apart or whatever. Um, I see, I see. That's a, I mean, that's a sequence of events that makes sense to me. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I was just trying to figure out exactly what went wrong there, but um, suffice to say, too much nitrogen somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess then just for context, especially since I alluded to this being very topical, what are the other operational aborts that have happened um, over time? And I guess uh, involving launch escape systems, so not, you know, aborting to orbit or a RSLS abort on, a, you know, from a shuttle on the pad. But essentially, there, there, there are kind of three other ones. So in December 1966, a uh, Soyuz 7K OK number one, and so that was a, an earlier generation Soyuz. Um, actually, I think it was the first generation, if I remember correctly, 7K OK. But essentially, it it had a uh, 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 one of its strap-on boosters failed to uh, ignite, and so they essentially aborted the launch then and there. And then while the rocket was sitting on the pad uh, for 27 minutes, then suddenly the launch tower fired, and that was bad because people had started to return apparently to the pad and so three people uh, uh had died and there was major damage to the facility mm -hmm. and so that kind of really screwed things up um back then and then going much more into the future i guess you know in the 80s this twist have happened but then in october 2018 you might have been thinking this whole time about wasn't there that soyuz uh more recently and yes the soyuz ms10 uh lucky or unlucky number 10 i guess um soyuz ms10 had alexi ovchin and, and nick haig and that was uh also the launch escape system pulling it away but that was after one of the again these these strap-on boosters but this one failed to separate correctly and kind of if i remember correctly the top part kind of scraped into the core and then they fired it and so they were already at altitude when they uh had their launch escape system go yeah it didn't fully separate and there was like a hinge or something on the top section of it or something like that and so it was kind of like banging into the side of the booster <laughs> that sounds right yeah yeah and then <laughs> days ago <laughs> in september of 2022 uh new shepherd 23 which we talked about on the top of the show so we were going to actually mention it a little later david but <laughs> i didn't want to spoil things mm -hmm. so yeah so in any event that is your space flight event all right thank you thank you dennis um so next week is going to be the 27th of september to the 3rd of october it would normally be my week, but I'm going to be gone next week. So, David, do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. So, next week, or the clue for next week is for 2011, and it is wait two months for a robot, seven months for a human. Okie doke. So, if you have a guess as to what this clue is in reference to, send us your guess. Uh, Twitter is probably the best way. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck, everybody. Good luck. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events, and thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. First up, we have uh, an event <laughs> that we might keep seeing over and over again, but hopefully not. <laughs> uh, so this is uh, Wednesday, September 21st, and on NASA TV at 7.15 a.m., 
coverage will begin of the cryogenic propellant tanking test for Artemis 1. And so again, it's sitting at 39B still, and there's a lot of moving parts, but this is when coverage of this uh, tanking will take place. Again, Wednesday, September 21st at 7.15 a.m. Eastern uh, time, I should say. And that's that's the tanking test to make sure the seals that they fixed are actually fixed. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. All right. Interestingly enough, while the coverage of that tanking test is taking place on NASA TV, they're actually going to be interrupting it with coverage of this next event, which is the launch of Soyuz MS-22. So that's going to be Sergei Prokopiev, um, Dmitry Pelotin, and Frank Rubio uh, is going to be the NASA astronaut on that one. The launch is going to happen on Wednesday, September 21st at 1354 hours UTC. Um, NASA is going to be covering uh, the launch uh, starting at 9 a.m. Uh, Eastern time on Wednesday. And then the rendezvous and docking uh, coverage is going to begin at 1215 p.m. Eastern time. The docking is currently scheduled to happen at 111 p.m. Eastern time. One of those superstitious times on a digital clock that you see as a kid and make a wish. And then after the rendezvous and docking, um, coverage of the hatch opening and like the welcoming ceremony will happen at 3.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, all of those on NASA TV. And then after that, on the 22nd, we have the DART pre-impact NASA briefing. So if you're interested in uh, the redirection of asteroids, uh, tune in for that. <laughs> How could you not be? That'll be at 3 p.m. Eastern time. And that's on NASA TV. You can also watch it on YouTube or wherever. Um, and the test will follow in a couple of days. We'll talk about that in a second. But, yep, that's the NASA briefing. And then we have another launch, and this one's very exciting. Uh, happy to see a Delta IV Heavy showing up on uh, upcoming spaceflight events. So yeah, this is September 24th, and it will be taking NREL-91. And if I got this right, this is the third to last Delta IV heavy flight. Uh, there will be one more launch in 2023, and then the final launch in 2024. Uh, both, uh, also NREL launches. And so uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, it has a window from 2050 UTC to 2312 UTC, and it will be flying, as always, out of Vandenberg Space Force Base, uh, Space Launch Complex 6. Then uh, uh, ABL's maiden flight is uh, delayed yet again. Um, in this case, the window is really, really, really wide because um, we're just going off of the road closures up in Alaska. Um, so right now they're looking at sometime on the from the 26th to the 28th is when the roads are going to be closed. So sometime in there uh, is uh, hopefully going to be their, their launch time. We'll, we'll see if, uh, if this is going to be the time they actually fly. Um, but that's uh, the, the vehicle is the RS one and yeah, uh, don't think it's going to be live streamed, but it'll be cool to see, uh, cool to see footage afterwards, hopefully. All right. And then after that, on the 26th, we have the actual DART test. That looks like uh, coverage for that begins at 5.30 p.m. and it goes through 8 p.m. So at 5.30, it looks like we're looking at the live feed of the, the yeah. DART spacecraft. So yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's, I mean, at some point between then and I guess around 6 or so is when the actual impact happens. I, I'm not sure. Um, but live coverage begins for the impact of the asteroid at 6 p.m. So I guess 6 p.m. and onward. I think what's happening is 5.30, they're just going to start displaying data on the screen and then mm -hmm. at six they'll have you know actual talking heads or whatever um, but we know that it's going to happen before eight <laughs> yeah and then by eight o'clock uh, that's when they have the post-impact press briefing uh, that's when uh, all the experts will talk about uh, how the test went what happened and that'll be interesting to know kind of like you said uh, who doesn't want to redirect an asteroid this is going to be interesting right. just to <laughs> see what the future of asteroid redirection holds <laughs> perhaps this test can tell us i really hope that we're going to get good footage back because the images that are closest to the asteroid need to be off of the spacecraft before it hits the asteroid. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't expect to see like a movie level, uh, oh, suddenly there are pebbles in front of us kind of, uh, kind of proximity being the, the last frame that gets off of there. But hopefully it's going to be more than just, oh, there's a distant speck of light and it's over. Um, <laughs> Really cool. Well, they've already released the uh, the Italian Space Agency's uh, little CubeSat, uh, Alicia Cube. 
Oh, uh, right. I forgot that we'll the, have a third-party view. It sort of functions as like a drone might when you're watching something mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Like uh, Hayabusa 2 was throwing out cameras left and right when it was doing yeah. cool stuff. <laughs> All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And that means it's time to debut the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Kenton, Ryan Regner, Deathkin, The Greek, Colin, Sam, Mike, Veden, and Chris, a.k.a. Stye Garfield, for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com, and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit, or Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.